You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. And a very good morning to you. Richard Watts with you here for another edition of Smart Arts. Big thanks, as always, to the Breakfasters. They'll be back with you tomorrow morning between 6am and 9am. On the show today, we've got a range of art forms, as always, to talk about. Uh, on the theatre front, we're going to find out about North by Northwest, currently playing at uh, Art Centre Melbourne in the Playhouse Theatre, presented by the Melbourne Theatre Company. Uh, and uh, that's a large... semi-commercial production, I guess you'd say. Um, uh, And I think it will tour and tour well. Uh, And on the other end of the scale, a little independent theatre production at the Owl and Cat in Richmond called I Am Catherine. We're going to find out. So that's kind of two extremes. Main stage theatre from our state theatre company and independent theatre in Richmond. Uh, We're also going to find out about a visual art exhibition called Group Exchange, the second Tamworth textile triennial, which is on at the Town Hall Gallery in Hawthorne uh, from the 9th of June till the 27th of July. That's a touring exhibition. Uh, and also uh, we're going to speak with composer Tom Henry uh, about a work he's written called Kakadu Man, which is being performed this Saturday and Sunday, the 13th and 14th of June in Macedon and then also in Middle Park. Plus uh, we've Got our fistful of seg, uh, fistful of fistful of segment session. No, fistful of celluloid with Cerise Howard this fortnight as well. And I do believe it's our art attack segment this fortnight as well. Hope you can stick around. It's going to be a fun morning, and uh, we're going to play a few tunes as well. Triple R is the station you're tuned to, 102.7 on your FM dial and streaming around the planet at rrr.org.au. And my first guest for the morning joins us in the studio now. Uh, Tom Henry is a composer who is presenting a work with the Australian Chamber Choir, celebrating the the life and work of a Northern Territory elder and poet. So, uh, Tom, welcome to Triple R to begin with. Thank you, Richard. Nice to be here. Now, um, tell us how you discovered this poet's work. Uh, you, now, and first of all, uh, I'm going to get you to, do, to uh, uh, tell us who he is because I'm not quite sure of the pronunciation of the name, so I'm going to leave that to well, you. <coughs> the, uh, the man in question is uh, Bill Nagy, and Bill Nagy uh, was a very important senior custodian of uh, Aboriginal law, in particular um, the Boonidge clan uh, estate. Um, so he was a custodian of those lands, in, which is really in Kakadu National Park as we know now, but it's in the East Alligator River. Um, and um, Bill Nagy was, uh, I guess, born around the First World War and, and died in 2002. Um, he was an extremely important um, teacher in his later later life. He uh, had a very long and, and, and colourful uh, working career, but in his later life he was absolutely instrumental in opening up um, the Kakadu lands uh, and uh, so that they could become... Um, uh, 
national parks are World Heritage listed and so opened up for all, 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 all people uh, internationally and, and, and in Australia to, to visit and also share his, his knowledge and wisdom of, of Aboriginal um, traditional law. So a significant figure that perhaps n- not necessarily that many white Australians, and particularly here in Melbourne, have heard about, though I'm sure he's, he is better known uh, in the north. Yeah, in, indeed, yeah. yeah. When did you first encounter his work? So I came across uh, a, a book uh, about almost exactly 10 years ago when I was on a tour with um, Oz Opera, actually, the touring arm of Opera Australia, and it was just in the... the the uh, tourist bookshop actually in Kakadu National Park and uh, the book's called uh, you've got it in front of you so it's Gagadu Man <coughs> Gagadu Man which is in the Gagadu language that's how Kakadu is, is spelled and pronounced Gagadu Bill Nagy and um, Essentially, it is um, it, it reads as poetry, so it looks like an epic poem. It's about a hundred pages, I guess, but the, it's distilled from many, um, many, many hours of interview um, with his um, great friend Stephen Davis um, on on audio, and then that was distilled into what, what looks like poetry. So, of course, he was a poet. I mean, the words of Bill Nagy and the meaning behind them are incredibly poetic and powerful, but it's also uh, made into a very beautiful book. So it's already then a, a fascinating cross-cultural fusion. It's kind of traditional stories uh, from an indigenous culture being translated into English and and presented in in a format that is more familiar to to Western readers and to white Australian readers. So we've already got that exploration of form and exploration of myth being presented in a way that uh, can open it up and open up the stories <coughs> behind Kakadu and the land and the the, the dreaming stories there for for people like myself and then that's being distilled and transformed even further because you've been commissioned uh, by the Australian Chamber Choir to then uh, set extracts of those poems to music. Indeed, yeah. So uh, there's, there's many steps along the line and and, in, and just the fact that the, the words of Bill Nagy were taken down and transcribed and, uh, the, and and abridged, I guess, into a very short form, which is still an epic poem, as it were. But um, even that is opening up his wisdom, as he wished, to a wider, um, you know, audience um, beyond, um, you know, Aboriginal people up in Kakadu. So it's an, he was an extremely important um, cross-cultural communicator wanting to extend his knowledge uh, and wisdom um, about about his lands but it, but indeed about the Australian uh, about living in Australia uh, to a wider wider audience now you've as a composer you've written works for on a relatively epic scale before you've written for uh, for orchestras for example yeah uh, and so your work has been performed by the Tasmanian Symphony the Melbourne Symphony and so forth but this is quite a different epic approach because you're taking these stories and setting them to music and you're setting them to music for the the voice for choirs rather right. than uh, any other musical form. Tell us about that process because it, the human voice seems a very apt one to be exploring these works musically. Yeah, well, it, it is very apt because... Um, I, Although, unfortunately, I, I never met Bill Nagy, but I've been told by people who knew him that he was an enormous presence and, and, and a great man and a very funny man, but also a deep resonant bass voice. So it's very apt that I said it for choir. But to answer your question um, more directly, the the fact that I set the words um, to, to voice was an extremely long and, <laughs> um, and involved process. I would say that the entire work probably took 
over a year and a half to write, but at least half of that was spent um, by me actually abridging the text from the book so that it was in a, a manageable form to set. And I set it in five separate um, movements or, or pieces, uh, which together, each of those movements represents a different theme which runs, runs strongly as a current throughout the book. And it should be said uh, that obviously you've done this uh, with the uh, the support and the blessings of uh, of Bill Napier's family as That's well. right, yeah. So that, that, of course, before I did anything, uh, I got in touch with um, uh, the the family through a very um, a very kind and helpful uh, man called Liam Ma, who's the CEO of the Jabaluka Association, who who essentially are the, the administrative custodians of of of, um, uh, of Kakadu National Park, um, and he. Uh, through, through him I liaised and, and got permission from the family and he told me a lot about Bill Nagy and also the publishers of the book who were called JB Books in Adelaide a fantastic organisation so yeah. So in, in many ways Bill broke with tradition to reveal these traditional stories um, and, and did so I understand consciously wanting them to be to be known and wanting the traditions to continue beyond him. In, exactly right so so his as he got older and he was over 80 when he died but as he got older he was extremely extremely aware that he didn't want this to to die with him. Um, some of the uh, old, uh, I, I guess, also important um, ab- Aboriginal elders in in the area included a man called Felix Holmes, um, and they learnt from in their youth. Um, a, a, a man called Billy Manalugu, um, uh, when they were, I guess, out buffalo hunting and, and, and lugging and doing all sorts of really physical stuff. But it's really important to, to understand that, that they were the, the custodians and the recipients of this important knowledge. And, and Bill Nagy was extremely concerned to, to, to not let it die, die with him. Of course, he was passing it on to his own people, but also to let white, uh, white, white um, people, uh, and, and from of all colours, as he said uh, in, the, in the preface to the book, um, to, to know the language. If I could, can, I just read a, a small. This says more eloquently than I could ever ever say, but in the uh, the first pages of the book, Hackadoo Man, he says, uh, Bill Nagy says, this story for all people, everybody should be listening, same story for everyone, just different language. So the language that you're presenting the work in is music, and as I said, choral music particularly. That's right. I know that you have a long involvement with choral music. You uh, uh, performed in a choir at the age of 18 um, at, uh, at uh, Trinity College at Melbourne Uni. Yeah, yeah. So you're familiar with the form. But yeah. nonetheless, um, as you said, this, this work took you over a year. It must have been an enormous challenge to, to knowing that you've been entrusted to present these stories in musical form for uh, the... Uh, the Australian Chamber Choir. So tell us a little bit about what audiences can expect when they listen to the work. Music is, in any form, a, a deeply emotional experience in many ways. So if people are uh, thinking of attending the performances of Kakadu Man uh, in Macedon uh, this Saturday at 3pm at the Church of the Resurrection or um, uh, on Sunday uh, in Melbourne in Middle Park at Our Lady of Mount Carmel, what will they hear? Well, um, that's a very good question. My, my, um, the style of this piece in, term, in, in musical style, if I could put it in context, is I, I would say very accessible. Um, in saying that, I, I've, I've deliberately not followed any particular style or influences in writing this work. I've really got into myself simply engaged with the, the words of Bill Nagy in a really um, instinctive way. 
and tried to clear the slate, as it were, and just respond to them musically as best I can. But I, I, I don't think there'll be anything um, too alarming for audiences. <laughs> Maybe volume-wise, but uh, yeah. but uh, I think it's an accessible work. How many members are there in uh, the Australian Chamber Choir? How many people are going to be performing? Do you know? Because, I mean, I love that kind of massed, the massed sound of a, of a vocal choir. As a, yeah, as a so it's not, it's, not, it's not a big choir. The Australian Chamber Choir is uh, between um, 15 and 20 um, voices, depending on <laughs> depending on illness. In, in the in, so it's not a, it's not a mass choir. It's a chamber choir, and it's a, it's a choir of very very able soloists in their own right and, and, and great musicians. So um, at, at times it will be a, a, a big resonant sound, but at other times I, I draw on um, the soloists and and quite quite delicate um, dialogue between different voices. And I understand the work you're sitting in a program alongside works from uh, the Italian Renaissance uh, and also. So some other works, uh, another work from uh, the 20th century choral work. Yeah, well. that's right. So we've got um, Giovanni Gabrielli, uh, Magnificat. Uh, so that's you know late Renaissance, early Baroque. Um, Ralph Vaughan Williams, Mass in G Minor, which is an absolute classic staple for all choral singers, uh, and that, that adds a sort of gravitas and <laughs> stability to the to the program. Uh, and then also uh, a work by Maurice Ravel from around the First World War, and um, Alain Jehan Alain, the French composer, probably for the pronunciation, if I've marked that up. Uh, Choral Dorian, which is an organ work which has been transcribed um, for um, choir. So the premiere of Kakadu Man in Macedon and Melbourne prior to then heading over to Europe, I believe, for That's performances right. in Germany, Denmark and Switzerland. Uh, if you would like to know more, uh, you can uh, find out the information uh, and book at www.ozchoir.org uh, and the performances of Kakadu Man are this Saturday, the 13th of June in Macedon at the Church of the Resurrection on the corner of Mount Macedon Road and Honor Avenue uh, and in in Melbourne on Sunday, 3pm uh, at Our Lady of Mount Carmel uh, in on Richardson Street in Middle Park. And as I said, more details at www.ozchoir.org. And given that uh, both of those venues, I suspect the acoustics will be rather lovely. Oh, they'll be absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Tom Henry, thank you very much for joining us. Many thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Every fortnight we talk visual art on the show. Around this time I am joined in the studio once again by regular guests, Ty Snaith and Ace Wagstaff. And good morning to you both. Ace is having microphone problems. No, I got it. <laughs> I, got Hello. it. I was going to say we were being so professional. <laughs> Sorry, that's just us. It's just yeah. our style. Good morning. Good morning. Well, also because, hey, this is community radio, so... Like, yeah, it's, we, we are allowed to do that. Yeah, I think we are, mm. because it, if nothing else, it says that as Ace's microphone droops and I suggest Ace, you move over to He's only the, human, other, the other mic. as is that microphone. Um, hold on. It's uh, all good. We're sorry. here. But this, this tells us that we are real people in a that's real right. studio. 
That's not right. some slick, polished, soulless That's kind right. of commercial radio. We're born to oh, fail. We're okay. humans. How's that going, eh? Well, a lot better. Good, <laughs> good. So, um, what visual art exhibition have we been to see this? Well, have, I say we. Have we been to see this week? <laughs> I, I don't remember you being there, Richard. No, no. Uh, we've been to see a, a couple, but the one that That's we both kind of wanted to talk about, yeah. well, I did, and maybe I forced it. No, definitely. Um, was, I think I threw it out there. Oh, good. It's like, get along the yes. night before. <laughs> I was, I'm definitely into it. It's at <coughs> Neon Park, um, and it's by Josie the Kid Crow, yeah. I like to call him. Is <laughs> that is Josie Kid Crow, but it just sounds better when you say Josie the Kid Crow. Yeah. 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 A painting exhibition. Painting. Mm. Painting of all things for an art review, and the exhibition's titled <laughs> Stupa Hiatus. Mm. Um, what What can you say about the layout of the exhibition, Ty? Oh. The layout, I'd, I'd say it's quite it's surprisingly st- straightforward. Yeah, yeah, for something that I think in um, in terms of his content and his approach or his kind of like, mm. what do you call that? Not enigma, but when someone has an air of something about them. Mystery? Mm, sort of. Like his, there's, you know. Yeah, there's a rich inner world within the painting. <laughs> no, but beyond that, outside of that, I think he comes with a kind of like mystique uh, and hype around in him. As IRL, a person. yeah. Yeah, exactly. In real life, yeah, as a person, as a person. So I think he has—he's sort of bigger than his paintings in mm. in a strange kind of way, if that makes sense. Paintings are pretty big, though. His paintings are pretty good. Yeah, um, I think there's—they're oil paintings. We should explain them. Yeah, as, they're all oil paintings in a fairly particular palette. You could say that all of them sort of use the same. The first thing I noticed is that they're really they're dirty paintings. Yeah. They're dirty. They're not like the dirtiest paintings and, that you'll and ever see. And these are strong colours. These are straight from the tube. Strong you reckon colors. they're straight from the tube? I think most of the paint on the surface of the paintings is. Yeah. Hmm. There's, there's a real immediacy. I mean, there's some mixing obviously that happens, and there's there's a lot of dirt on the canvas well, as well. I just couldn't help thinking, how the hell does he get the canvases so dirty? He's, he must. The muddying. Yeah. Well, his studio must be in a shed or something. Mm. When you said dirty paintings, I We're was really initially in. thinking, oh. Are they kind of explicitly uh, sexual? No, but not the no, content. Sorry, no. the actual... You dirt. literally mean the, kind of... The gr- actual application of the paint and the condition of the yeah. painting's cleanliness. So it is a figurative term, dirty, as in yeah. the way that he's put it on, but also the... the yeah, like the, there's, the, yeah. there's foot prints, there's fingerprints, there's like they've obviously been... There's a lot been, of grime. And if you look at them, they've obviously been like the edges of the canvas actually have a line of dirt, so they've yeah. been chucked on the ground, they've been dragged around the ground, they've been put up, held, you know, there's not, yeah. they're not precious at all. Which is a really lovely contrast to when you, you, yeah. we think about the notion of fine art. Mm. Mm. Uh, so the fact that he's very deliberately uh, trying to, to bring these works into the real world. Yeah. Mm. Grit and, and dirt and grime and I think that's kind of what he's that all about. And grime and dirt, really interesting point, Richard. It's also like the marker of time on the yeah. paintings as well, because and you life. can see the method of production. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's layers of dirt and layers of paint, and obviously mm. on top you have like this really thick impasto in some places, which just kind of overpowers several layers of paint and dirt that yeah. you can track until you know you get to the linen at the base. But then what's interesting is the content is, I mean, I, I think the process is really authentic and, and quite romantic, the way that they've obviously been made and the production. It's a real modernist 
this kind of, um, you know, pursuit, I guess, in, in the production, the method. Yeah, but then what he's painting is yeah. borrowing from a lot of different sources. So there's a lot of, um, you know, like one of them looks just like a Miro, which is probably mm. my least favourite in the in the show. Stylistically borrowing from a lot of sources. Yeah, and yeah. then there's also references, like there's one um, that has Bert and Ernie, my favourite one, I think, which is called Some Are Afraid of the Evil Twin, the So-Called Duplicity Personality, But We Don't mm. Care About Them. And it's it's got Bert and Ernie in the middle of the canvas, and the more and he's kind of surrounded by this psychedelic vomit of painterly Nostrum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nostrum. It's Just... better than vomit, isn't it? Um, and there's like a little canvas, a whirlwind a, of chaos. There's a frog. There's all these little references, and then a whole mm. lot of abstract kind of mush and lines. And but the, the the more I looked at it, I thought I like you know you, when you get that first initial response, I like it. Like I. I want that painting is usually mm. what I think. <laughs> oh, I want to have painted that painting sometimes, yeah. I think. And But then the more I thought about the, the central Burton Ernie, you know, and talking to Jeff at Neon Park, I was like, is it about... Is it about a sexuality thing? Because now when I see Bert and Ernie, I think... They're gay icons. They're gay icons. Yeah. But then Jeff and I were sort of saying, well, why are they? I mean, why aren't they just childhood references? And then why aren't the, they just two guys? Well, then the more I thought about it, you know what I reckon the reference is? Or for, for me, what makes the most sense is mm. that you remember Bert's jumper... It's those really muddy kind of like weird clashing colour stripes. Yeah, that the orange I think, and the brown, I think, yeah. I reckon that's yeah. the reference because <laughs> then you look through the rest of the painting and there's those kind of colours continued in these rainbowy swirls of muddy clashing colours. So whereas, it's interesting. Whereas in some of the other works, his, um, I guess his pop culture references are much more overt. Uh, the work The oh, Twits, absolutely. for example, yeah, twits, yeah. which um, replicates the, the, the image from a Roald Dahl book. I can't remember mm. the name. It's in style as well. And mm. and also in format, but but interesting in, as a pair the to the Bert and Ernie thing as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's just called the Twits, I think, yeah, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's but then in saying that they're, they're the most overt references, and the rest of it does come from what seems to be a very personal space. And I think there's that quite a there's like I really enjoyed the SpongeBob, um, you know, kind of Philip Gaston inspired mm. painting, mm. Uh, a man with his oh, back the to cheese us. back. Yeah, the cheese back. <laughs> They're and funny then the same too. kind of that that khaki green and uh, you know bright iridescent yellow. What what I think is interesting when you read a little bit about Josie Kikrow or you sort of learn about him is that you know he's constantly referred to as a young like quite young but he's actually 28 now mm. which is still quite young considering I think if you got kid in your name you're probably going to carry that label for a while. <laughs> Very true. Just you know in the back of people's subconscious. But the other thing there's quite a few contradictions about him is that I mean you do people do age obviously but he's often referred to as you know an outsider but then often when people say he's, he's an outsider it. they're like oh actually he's not an outsider because he's actually not an outsider mm. he's at one of the most fashionable you know highly reputable contemporary art galleries and, and he was and signed when he was 23 as well yeah, yeah and his both his parents were artists so he's actually in no way an outsider but it's interesting that you can carry the style of outsider because art. of the language the visual yeah. language yeah so there's definitely that kind of contradiction going on actually very sophisticated and informed but still come across as an outsider yeah. type style artist. And it's just using that language and using mm. those rules and systems that are in place of outsider art um, but yeah. also of appropriation and kind of cultural signifiers. Mm. Um, and, and, and 
And action, I think a big part of yeah, it is definitely. It, like when you look at the way the, the canvas production is, methods. Yeah, yeah, but the way the canvases are stretched as well, it's quite it's quite interesting because he's either done it intentionally or he's just really sort of unco at stretching canvases or whatever. But they, <laughs> they look almost like they've been painted on a canvas, then unstretched, it looks, then I'm restretched. Just about to say that, yeah, it looks you know, like they've been you know unstretched and restretched a couple of times, deliberately mm. warped and yeah. And, yeah. yeah, definitely. And whether that's deliberate or not is, well, is you, the question. Yeah, and and you, you you spend your time kind of investigating the images mm. as much aesthetically as you are kind of for technical clues, mm. such as the way, you know, where, where the driest segments of the paint are or what's, you know... Um, That's right. Where, where the low oils of where the low levels of oil have been used to kind of tighten and warp the canvas in certain yeah. places and not others. Or, or yeah. why has this one been stepped on? Mm. These ones have been obviously propped up. You know, the, mm. there's a lot of that sort of. They're very much a marker. But of you've his got life, to ask you know? yourself, like, you know, <laughs> some choices are just ad hoc. Like, well, for the they must the be. But we don't know that for sure, no. right? So, uh, yeah. So I think it's that that they're very much signs or, or, or symbols of painting as an act of kind of pure instinct. And for mm. me. They they kind of they're quite romantic in that notion that they're almost like animalistic or you know quite dare I say you know primal dirty there's something of that to them whether that's just purely by accident or who he is or intentional does it really matter it doesn't matter but they're intriguing pieces of <laughs> stuff the artist is Josie Kid Crow the exhibition is Stupor Hiatus yes uh, on at Neon Park Gallery uh, until the fourth of July yes uh, for more information you can go to www.neonpark.com.au and I do believe a couple of them are still available if you're collector and you're interested in um, collecting. Quite a few have sold already though as well. Yeah, Yeah, there's still a few still (laughs) a few there that are quite interesting. So, yeah. We should just say, uh, if you've not been to Neon Park before as well as checking out the website, Neon Park, which is park with a C, neonpark.com.au In the real world, it's located at uh, one of 53 Burke Street in Melbourne and uh, you enter via a laneway, don't you? Yeah, I think it's called McKillrath or something like that. It's kind of like you're walking into a car park, yeah. 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 Um, The other show that I wanted to mention that I really also enjoyed was um, Kieran Robinson. I was just about to say that at, at Sarah Scout, Scout Presents. Yeah. yeah, an interesting show of lots of. Um, I guess it's kind of not the best of Kieran's work, but the best of Kieran's styles, and it's quite quite. I um, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, encouraging um, to see them all in one. Yeah, show, the video you know, work with the sculpture and photos and photos and and. Yeah. That's pretty much. Oh, and neon. Yeah, yeah. It's a. It's also a really good work. I think Sarah Scout kind of on a bit of a roll, right? I know. Like yeah. Every show we want to say. And that show like that. curated in the space, I think, is is just fantastic as well. As it soon is. as you walk in, in your face with that neon above the door. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the options of work, walking into either two gallery spaces. Yeah. Uh, one with the sculptures and the light work, and the mm. other with the uh, projections. But yeah. yeah, really tightly curated, fantastic. Yeah, both both really good shows, and they're only like two blocks apart those two galleries so so sarahscoutpresents.com is at uh, 15 of 12 Collins Street if you want to get along to and, that gallery as well perhaps if I may just mention one more thing tomorrow night is the Chapter House Lane fundraiser so uh, for I mean most people listening would know about Chapter House Lane but they're a really good artist run space uh, just next to St Paul's Cathedral in the Chapter House Laneway yeah mm. and they're, they're, they're doing a great job of sort of showing non-represented mid-career like really good there's been some good good artists and they basically everyone that's had a show in the last year um, myself included donate a work and all the money goes to Chapter House Lane mm. so you can go and buy one of the works have a drink and I think who's the guy that DJs at um, Cherry you know the famous old soul 
dude. I can't remember his name now, but he's DJing anyway. So if you oh. want to reminisce about the Cherry Days, yeah, it should be fun. Tomorrow, 6 p.m. At? Um, Chapter House Lane in but the But we city. should also say you can get along and you can see the work in the window today. Oh, yeah, anytime. Yeah. Oh, is it up? Yeah, it would be up mm. today. Yeah, exactly. Go mm. and check it out first, then go and so buy it. So it's not a venue you need to walk into during uh, no. opening no. hours. It is a it's window always open. Yeah. yeah, and I think some of the works are really reasonable, so it's a good place to collect stuff if you're not you know, up for I spending thousands of dollars. I had a little yesterday. It looks yeah. great. The work's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, they do so much with the, the area, the meters yeah. per square that they have. Yeah, Lou Clerks, the curator, is yeah. She's really good at what she does. So. Great. Yeah. Well, that's three shows to go and check out. Mm. Yeah. Thank you both for joining us. We'll Pleasure. catch you in a fortnight's time for another Art Attack. Bye. See you then. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. It's time for us to talk theatre, Melbourne Theatre Company, uh, currently presenting a production of North by Northwest, uh, based on the famous Alfred Hitchcock film, which I had never seen. So I went in and watched this as a piece of theatre. Um, and then on the weekend, just going on the long weekend, I sat down and watched the film. Uh, and it was an unusual experience watching the film going, yep, yep, seen that, seen that, yep, that very faithful Wow, okay, it it was quite unusual. Joining us in the studio to talk about North by Northwest, we have Carolyn Burns, who has adapted the film for the screen. Carolyn, good morning. Hi, good morning. And Matt Hetherington, who uh, is playing the urbane villain Van Damme, uh, and (laughs) other cast members as well. Welcome. Thank you very much, Richard. It's great to be here. So, Carolyn, let's start with you. Was this a commission, or was this something that you approached the MTC about? No, it was definitely a commission. Who would have thought to approach anybody about doing this? Um, I'd done an adaptation of High Society in the early 90s, which had been sort of successfully toured Australia and toured Britain. And so I think I had some maybe um, sort of skills to be able to do this. And uh, after eight months or nine months of looking at the job, I think with Simon Phillips and Nick Schlieper, who also did the set design with Simon, we worked out a way that it could work on the stage. There you go. And work it does, I have to say. Did you? Were you thrilled and scared and laughed? And I certainly laughed. Um, <laughs> and I was fascinated by the stagecraft. Because I think for anybody, uh, and I'm sure, Matt, this is uh, a good point to bring you into the, into the discussion, had you seen the film before you were cast in the production? Yes, I had. So when you were approached, when your, your agent, for example, rang you and said, uh, there's an audition coming up for uh, a production, um, uh, did you think, how on earth are they going to uh, uh, crash a biplane on stage? How are they going to (laughs) clamber across the carved face of presidents? Well, of course. I mean, I had seen the movie years before and loved it. And and you're right, those questions did leap into my mind. Questions like, how would I play the role of Van Damme after James Mason also leapt into my mind, which is another story altogether. But when you're dealing with people like Simon Phillips and, and with Caro, you just you have faith in their ability to make the right decisions and and that faith is i guess well i, I feel satisfied that it was i put the faith in the right people because it was it, it's an extraordinary transition i think that they've taken this these this iconic movie moments and put them on the stage in a way that is incredibly satisfying for for the audience and it's a great deal of fun to play as an actor 
Now, let's talk about that challenge of playing a character who has already been definitively presented on screen by a classic actor. Um, And that's also a a question, something I want to ask you about, Carolyn. When you were writing, were you trying to... Um, distill the essence of uh, the characters on screen, Cary Grant, James Mason, etc., or were you writing openly in a way that anybody could be cast in the roles? Well, that's a tough question because basically they, they, I was really writing to expand characters that I thought didn't get enough airtime, like Roger's mother, you know, people like that. And I also was very interested in expanding the spy story, making it more spy versus spy so that um, it depends. You say Matt was a villain. It depends which side you're on. Mm-hmm. You've got, you know. Um, it depends. So, in a way, I was really looking at trying to make the audience, especially someone like you who hadn't seen the film, uh, get the Cold War more, you know, so that it wasn't a farce. It had to have some um, thrilling aspects, but they all made them three-dimensional characters, and they could have easily been two, don't you think? Oh, very much so. Tell us about that process of of finding your own version of this role. It's always a a big question for an actor. When you're dealing with something that's uh, well-known, should you start from scratch and reinterpret the, the role, create it for yourself, or should you bring the essence of what people know? Uh, I had a discussion with Simon about this, and we both liked the idea of bringing the essence of James Mason's performance to this production. I, I'm not scared about that. I wasn't, you know, it was not an impression, but there is definitely uh, a, a tip of the hat to him because I think the, the way he played the role is so beautiful and so interesting. And I thought the challenge to be able to bring that to the stage and amongst this new presentation of this story will be interesting enough. I, I don't feel like I need to uh, start again. So uh, it it's a bit scary because when you do that, then you are putting yourself up a little bit for people to say, well, he's just doing James Mason. He's just ripping James Mason off. So, well, I, I didn't see it like that. And this is the only other version of North by Northwest that exists in the world. So I figured if it was the 20th version, if there'd been 100 productions, then you would make it your own. There is definitely a great deal of me in there, but I'm inside the shell of the great James Mason, there's no question. And you're also playing some other characters as well, because this is a, uh, a production <laughs> in which, as the opening yeah. credits very uh, hilariously say, um, a cast of thousands, because mm. uh, every single uh, person in the production, with the exception, I think, of, uh, uh, of Matt Day, who's in the lead, are playing multiple roles. He's He luckily just has one character to play. Everyone else kind of has to be uh, bus boys and hotel clerks and yeah. bus drivers and quizzical farmers and people at auctions <laughs> and so uh, that in itself must present a, an intriguing challenge for you. It, it is. It's it's very satisfying as an actor to play those little roles because you know you put uh, well I do I put a moustache on and glasses and a hat and an overcoat and you could just walk across the stage or stand there but it's much more fun to kind of get into that character and and we have little worlds within the world with the, the discussions that take place on stage are real discussions about what's going on. It's terribly interesting. So we, all of the actors have jumped on board in what is essentially an ensemble piece to create uh, as much reality as we can inside this um, shell of... It's, it's, I mean, it's hard to explain 
explain if you haven't seen it the fact that it's a relatively simple set we're pushing chairs and tables around but in each moment we're creating an entirely different location from a cornfield to an auction inside uh, so we figured that as actors we needed to embody the characters as, as truthfully as we could and then just let the magic take place. Carolyn in terms of writing those scenes uh, and particularly the big climactic scenes how much uh, were you aware of the way they would be presented when you began the process of adapting had there already been discussions about using uh, green screen on stage and simple theatrical slash cinematic tricks to present certain key scenes and key ideas or did that come later in the piece meaning that your process of writing was in some ways a process of problem solving oh both actually that's a kind of multi-question uh but it was we did actually but we had been experimenting with small model airplanes and trains and things and, and looking at what kind of camera now they make these wonderful cameras that are quite sophisticated so it was that mixture of amateurism and sophistication that <laughs> sort of ended up on stage but it was my concept at the beginning to have two booths where we had the goodies and the baddies mostly and um so there was a conversation going on spies versus spies and then of course the spies started having to do all this other manipulation I mean they had no time for cryptic crosswords backstage these guys it was <laughs> no. choreographed from start to finish yeah. the great um, final Mount Rushmore scene was Simon's Theatre of the Absurd in my opinion you know because I, I, you've got no copyright to even show those pictures um, so he came up with this startling idea and they practiced they spent actually two weeks just doing texts um, with the audiovisual Josh Burns and basically working out how to make it stressful, funny, and I mean it ended up just being funny, but it, well, I'm, I'm always stressed like crazy at that last scene mainly because I think they will fall but they, uh, they haven't yet yes. Certainly watching the production, one of the things that struck me was I, I was thinking, I want to give a shout out to the stage manager and the deputy stage manager, Christine Bennett and Jess Burns for Yay. being backstage yeah. and getting everybody yeah. on at the right time Incredible, yeah. oh, and not crushing us with anything. They're maestros, I mean without them, I can't imagine this show going anywhere else without them, you know Absolutely Absolutely. They're, They're incredible. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask about, Carolyn, was when adapting this and, and talking uh, with Simon Phillips, the director, um, what kind of tone did you want to achieve? Because the one thing that struck me about watching it, and this is where I put my critic's hat on for a moment, was that tonally I felt it was pulling in two different directions. It was um, there were It felt in some ways it was trying to emulate the, the slightly more farcical production, the 39 Steps, for example, that we saw a few years ago, which took Hitchcock and made it more into comedy and at other times there were points where I really felt there was there was a serious attempt at drama and thriller and I some, thought sometimes the comedy undercut the drama and the thrills a little bit. Tell us about the tone and, and your approach to creating this work. Well Simon and I have known each other for many years and basically I, I was a political journalist. I've always been very interested in um, spies and uh, and uh, so I was really interested in turning this more more into a serious thriller um, versus, as I say, his frivolous nature. And so sometimes I won, sometimes he won. And um, I think by the time this gets goes anywhere else, uh, it should we should get that balance about right. But um, the audience. You know, I, I have. I mean, I'm assuming you were a little scared at times. I'm hoping so, but because I, maybe it's just me. I, 
but but it is when you see live theatre and they're doing kind of wacky things, you do actually get. But I I was really loved the thriller story. I love the spy story. It's a proto James Bond story in many ways. Mm. North by Northwest. And it was the height of the Cold War, and I deliberately put it on May the seventeenth, nineteen sixty. The date being that when the uh, R- Russians walked out of the Paris uh, summit meeting of of the uh, nuclear. And, and nuclear arms at that time were terrifying the entire Western world. So I, I put it in a date, I set it in a time, and I am sure that the villain will be swapped for Gary Powers in 1962, who was, the, who was the pilot that was shot down by the Russians at that time, and the Americans said it was just a weather plane. And so I, that was my set. Sorry, but that's, that's, that's complicated. No, it's good to know that you have, writing it, you have that background in mind because it's one of the things I love about these kind of interviews and conversations is as an audience member, you get to see one thing, but then, uh, we hear about all the, the ideas that, that are can distilled down into it, which enriches the experience for I think anybody who listens to this interview and then goes to see the show. They're already, their, their ears are, are, have been, their minds have been opened a little bit more about the process. Uh, in terms of the process itself um a friend of mine saw i think the the first dress rehearsal uh and uh simon phillips director was on stage saying this is basically the first time we've done an entire tech run with all the equipment um for for the cast is have there been kind of even greater nerves than normal just thinking what on earth do we do if something jams or if one part of the set doesn't open and close when it's supposed to be how do we ad lib our way out of this it was a real challenge, and it continues to be a challenge. I mean, every night we really have to have our wits about us because if you make the slightest mistake, everything turns into a train crash. We've realised that if you put a chair 10 inches to the left, then forget about it. Everything will come crashing down to a halt. And uh, that it's very true. That, that first dress rehearsal that we had, which was our first preview, it was the first time we had run the show from start to end. And that's always terrifying for actors because they're terribly concerned about looking foolish on stage and letting each other down it's so important and it is as i said before it's an ensemble piece but it is a huge team of people running around doing very precise things Uh, but in early days when we first got to the theater the precise nature of the running around wasn't quite what it is now it was a little bit like where do i go next what am i doing how do i get to the other side of the stage where's my hat you've got my chair who am i what's my line do they like it they love it this is amazing It's kind of summed up an actor's life, really. (laughs) Uh, But it really was about knowing we were drilled remarkably well and that was the great thing about the way that we rehearsed this this piece and as Caro said that we were teching early on because it's so precise and you know with the use of the booths and with the um, the models that without giving too much away if you make an inch of a mistake in the booth it turns out to be 50 inches up on the screen. Yeah. Uh, the, the, as an adaptation, I think it's a, a fantastic job of distilling the essence of the film down. It's a wonderful piece of stagecraft as well and with some great performances. Uh, and I suspect North by Northwest is the kind of stage show that will have a very successful life beyond this initial season at uh, uh, Art Centre Melbourne. So congratulations to you both. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Richard. So uh, if you feel like booking to see North by Northwest, adapted by Carolyn Burns and 
starring amongst the other cast of thousands, Matt Hetherington, who are both in the studio with me. The season has already been extended. Uh, it was originally going to run, I think, until... The what? 20th, I think, uh, or something. Yeah, it was going to run until the 4th of July. It's now running to the 4th. It can't run any further, further. because there's someone else coming into the theatre. Theatres are in demand in this yeah. town, uh-huh. let's face it. It's uh, the production North by Northwest, presented by Melbourne Theatre Company in uh, the Playhouse at Arts Centre Melbourne. Uh, you can book by calling the South Bank Theatre, um, 8688 or by going to ntc.com.au. You can also call Arts Centre Melbourne, 1300 182183, and book tickets at artscentremelbourne.com.au, where North by Northwest is being presented. Don't make the mistake my friend did on opening night and go around the corner to the South Bank Theatre, because if you go there tonight, uh, you'll have to go and see a completely different play. <laughs> I'm going to be talking to the people from that particular play on the show next week. But uh, uh, Caroline, Matt, it's been my pleasure having you on. Thank, Thank you, you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Richard Watts with you here on Triple R. We're going to talk visual arts now, and in particular, we're going to talk textile arts. I'm joined on the line by the curator of Group Exchange, the second Tamworth Textile Triennial, uh, and the curator is Cecilia Heffer. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, and also joining us in the studio, one of the artists uh, involved in the exhibition, which is uh, on at the Town Hall Gallery in Hawthorne, we have artist Ilka White. Ilka, hello. Thanks for joining us hello, as well. Richard. Thanks for having me. Uh, and can I just double-check at this stage that Cecilia, you can hear Ilka, and Ilka, you can hear Cecilia? Yes. Yes, we can. Hooray! Isn't technology a wonderful thing? <laughs> uh, now, it's, it's interesting that technology is helping us present this interview, I guess, in that when people think of textile art, perhaps they think of a very traditional art form. But, Cecilia, my understanding is that with this uh, exhibition, Group Exchange, you're very much, as a curator, um, kind of focused on a very contemporary expression of textile art. Yes, that's right. Uh, what are, my aim for the exhibition was to broaden audiences and, and the way that we perceive and experience textiles. So one of the great things about um, this travelling show is people's responses, and they say, I didn't think textiles could be like this. So we're presenting textiles in a very new way and with, I guess, contemporary tools and contemporary messages. So uh, in terms of the exhibition then, Ilka, when you were approached uh, to be in it, what was the brief you were presented with and how did you respond? Well, the brief initially was just to to show us your work, you know, show us what you do. And um, following then the invitation to be in the show, Cecilia asked whether we might consider collaboration as a component of our practice and how it affects our work. So interestingly that that came in after the artists had been chosen. So I think that people started to have to think about that, you know, in some cases, I think, for the first time. For myself, though, I'd collaborated before and was happy to do so again. Cecilia, why did you want collaboration to to play a key element in this exhibition? Well, interdisciplinary thinking and collaboration between disciplines is very much at the forefront of current thinking. So you have collaboration in museum culture, where museums are collaborating with other organisations to create exhibitions, and you also have it um, very much at the foreground in education. And so 
So I thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to see and ask uh, textile artists who are masters in their field to step out of their pattern of practice and see what would happen if they did collaborate with someone else. So in terms of that collaborative process then, um, Ilka, tell us about kind of how that challenged you as an artist and kind of what it meant for you as a, as a practitioner working in textiles already. Did it advance your work in a way you hadn't expected before or take you in different directions? Yeah, I think it did. Like I'd sa- I said before, I had collaborated before, but perhaps with the invitation to make that a focus of this work, I... I think in hindsight I may have gone too far, actually. <laughs> I took on a lot. I um, I approached quite a few people and ended up collaborating with four different artists who work in, well, some of them work in different media to me. So I collaborated with Christian Lemley-Ruff, who's a contemporary photographer based in Melbourne, and with um, Rosemary O'Rourke, who's an artist from Hobart, whose work I'd long admired, and also with the jeweller Darren Harvey, who until recently was Melbourne-based and has just moved to Tasmania. And uh, lastly, um, let me think, who, I, who else I, I need mention? I'm sorry, I've just had a mind blank. Um, but... But aside from the formal collaborators, I guess you would say, Group Exchange, the title of this exhibition, applies to my work very in a very real way in that the labour-intensive nature of the work meant that towards the deadline I needed to call in assistance. <laughs> so I actually had the, blessed, the blessing of help um, as from studio assistants um, Kim McKechnie, who's also... Um, showing work in the exhibition, and Gillian Lavery, also another Tamworth artist. So the group exchange title really applied very strongly to my work. And Cecilia, is it true then that uh, that title, group exchange, was also then uh, representative of the experience of the other artists that you presented in the exhibition? Yes, so I sort of... I thought long and hard about, you know, the titles, and it sort of just emerged. It came out of an experiment that we were able to do, and that was to fly all the artists up to Tamworth, 22 artists from around Australia, to meet each other and introduce each other to their work. Uh, And hence uh, the idea group exchange as a title came about. So it really was a wonderful weekend where the artists got to actually see the Tamworth Gallery space. Often you're invited to be in a show and you have no idea where you're going to hang the work and you have no idea of who you're working with. So it was a wonderful experiment and opportunity to... um, The artists are given a year to make the work, so it was a, a lovely opportunity for them to start right at the beginning of their journey to, to know who's in the show and, and um, the space itself and how the, how the work was going to travel and how the work was installed. Now, you've said that the, uh, the work was very deliberately... Uh, well, you, your curatorial approach was to want to present uh, textile art as, as a contemporary medium. And I know that, for example, one of the artists uh, in the exhibition, uh, Jemima Parker, sources her patterns from YouTube, for example, which is very much uh, a contemporary reference. But one of the things that I... One of the questions I had about the exhibition is, um, although, yes, this is a, a contemporary expression of textile art, I get the impression that the art form as a whole is still very much a gendered art form. Because is it true that there are only two men involved in the exhibition of the, the 22 artists you're presenting? That's true. 
it um there's been a lot of discussion around that it, it's still very gendered uh towards a female practice uh but there are um male artists um, textile artists within australia it um also has the preconceptions of women's work etc from a historical point of view but uh i'm hoping that when audiences go to the exhibition they really are um sort of opened to to what textiles can actually be and how we can extend them the the exhibition so far we've had it in tamworth and in gosford and in sydney and the uh the audience have been um very positive in their response um, to the work so yes uh, only two men in the exhibition so we in, well, invite more actually. men to Hold on. Can oh, I... yes. I'm thinking of we've makeshift concepts. Yeah. Yeah, we've yeah. got Amanda Chant as well, so three. Three. Um, uh, but having said that, uh, Linda Wong Mengerson, who is in the exhibition, has um, just uh, curated a, a textile exhibition called Slip Stitch, and the majority of the artists, or a lot of the artists, were men in that. So it's a slow balance and a slow change. Ilka, what would you like to see uh, in terms of kind of further diversifying the, the the artists who work with textiles as a medium? Well, I think there's already a great deal of diversity. I think that the the term textile art is one that sort of um, places the work made from that medium in its own, as its own sort of genre. When really there are many artists using textiles today in contemporary work. And, I mean, I think of Fiona Hall, who's right now showing in Venice, uses textiles a lot in her work. Not not always, but that's the same for a lot of these Tamworth artists, a lot of the artists in this Tamworth show. So I think sometimes it's just a, a, a title um, that... That the, the boundaries don't really need. Uh, well, perhaps they do. Maybe that's that's needs to be discussing further. But for me, I don't feel like there's a bound, there's a boundary that I have to break through. I feel like I work sometimes with textiles, sometimes with other media, and the work is driven by the subject. And I think that's true of many artists today. Cecilia, in terms of a conversation around uh, the exhibition and the art form, um, I understand there's going to be a, a symposium at RMIT on the 24th of July. Is that right? Yes, there is. It will be at the Brunswick campus uh, from 10 to 1, and we'll have more details um, on the website with that. It's, it's, the idea is start a conversation. So we um, it was very successful in Sydney. I held it at, at UTS, and uh, we had artist talks from the symposium, from the exhibition, and then we had a panel uh, of artists or designers that were outside the discipline of textile. So it was this lovely exchange and a conversation about making and um, new directions and, and new ideas. Group Exchange, the second Tamworth textile triennial, is showing at the Town Hall Gallery, Hawthorne Arts Centre, 360 Burwood Road in Hawthorne. It's on until the 27th of July, and you can find out more information at townhallgallery.com.au. And after the Hawthorne leg, uh, I believe it then goes on to South Australia, the ACT, (laughs) and regional New South Wales. That's right. It's, I've got a, a travelling show. It's very. It's it's a lot of fun, and um, it, it's just a wonderful privilege to be part of. Uh, we've been speaking with curator Cecilia Heffer, who's joined us on the line, and artist Ilka White. Ilka, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard. And Cecilia, thank you for joining us as well. And I hope that uh, many people get along to see the show. All the best. Thank you so much.
We were just listening there to Dick Diver from their album Melbourne, Florida, Tearing the Poster Down, the name of the track, uh, something that I'm sure resonates with anybody who has ever been in a band at any point in time and promoting themselves on the street, or for that matter, promoting their independent theatre production on the street with posters around town. Such an independent theatre production might be I Am Catherine, presented by Eleven Arms Productions, uh, in association with the Canberra Collective. It's going to be on at the Owl and Cat Theatre in Richmond from the 16th to the 21st of June. It's a, a deconstruction of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. Joining us to tell us more, director slash producer Renee Palmer and actor Adrian Sloan. Welcome to you both. Thank Hello. You. Welcome. <laughs> so, um, uh, Renee, let's start with you. When did this project begin? Has this been a like a, a long-term idea that's slowly come to fruition or is it more of a, um, a quick boil, the time is right, let's do it now kind of approach? You know, I think it's a bit of both. It, it, look, it has been a very long process. So it actually started about five years ago and I was doing a postgrad at La Trobe and I was doing a Shakespeare class and we were obviously, you know, talking about Shakespeare plays and The Taming of the Shrew came up and it was the first time I'd read it and it had always been sold to me as a romantic comedy and I just, when I was reading it, I actually had the complete opposite response. I didn't find anything romantic about it. I didn't find anything funny about it. I just don't find domestic violence funny under any circumstances and that's what came out for me. And um, so it was an idea that I had about actually, you know, uh, women sort of like, you know, talking about the show because Catherine's voice is often silent. So she's loud, but she's never heard. And so it was an idea that it just developed and it, the timing was right. And so I was able to actually work with four women, four performers, and it's been an amazing ensemble journey basically so what's been really lovely about this show as director generally you feel the pressure to I guess dictate the direction of the show but this has been fantastic and I've been quite comfortable going into rehearsals on some nights and going all right so we've got this scene I actually don't quite know what to do with it what do you think and just literally working it together so we have had absolutely an amazing time recrafting the show, working it, adapting it. And part of the show, what we really wanted to do was, like, we've got some original text from Taming of the Shrew, but it's actually about our personal experiences. And it's a reaction to Taming of the Shrew and its response um, about Catherine's journey and actually about reclaiming and embracing. And the other thing I really want to mention, it is... For what we've done, it is a comedy because we found comedy was going to be our weapon because many people think women can't be funny. I don't think that's true. If, I can never understand those people because it's going to, just, just go to a comedy night yeah. around town. Um, exactly. but, uh, but comedy is very subjective, I guess. Um, Adrian, for you as an actor taking part in this group-devised process, yeah. um, the fact that you're, you have a template but no script, is that liberating, terrifying or both? It was exciting. Um, we just, because we all went away and looked at the script and took out the pieces that annoyed us and inspired us the most, and we wrote our own response to it, uh, our response to the character of Catherine and also blending that with our own personal stories, and came back without any idea of how we were actually going to perform it and then just took it onto the floor and physicalised everything. And because the four of us just uh, worked so well together and, and Renee directed us so beautifully, things just started to take shape. And so it was a really positive experience. And it was interesting the way 
we all were managed to meld together and, and just scenes would materialise. <laughs> and it was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad that it's fun because, as you say, uh, the fact that, uh, Renee, it, it's, it was, it's presented as a romantic comedy, but um, it's much more a play about the economic subjugation of women. Yeah. Um, and you use the phrase, uh, Catherine is loud but never heard. It's kind of, it's the classic male representation of a, a woman and how a, um, a woman who is perceived as, well, in her own right, is strong-willed, mm. uh, is presented as shrewish yes, and, yeah. uh, and and uh, needs to be kind of forced into her place. Absolutely. Well, one of the, you know, like when we like we had many discussions and things that had been, uh, you know, like um, when we were, I guess when we were growing up, things that had been spoken to us, like little phrases that you remember, like I'm, I was a tomboy. I grew up with four brothers. I looked like one of my brothers, basically. People thought I was one of the boys. And one of the things that was always directed to me was, you need to act like a lady. Can't you act like a lady? And that was the thing that always, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, was uh, told to me and it just rings true in my head. And so one of the things that we talk about in the show, particularly at the beginning, we have a character called Lady Botham and talks about lessons in femininity. And it's about this ridiculous notion of what it means to be feminine. And it's all, yeah, I don't even know what it is to be feminine. I don't know, you know, Adrian's got a different idea of what femininity is, you know. You've probably got some different ideas yourself. So it's like... I don't even know what masculinity is. <laughs> well, who knows, you know, and, yeah. it's, and so, yeah, and it's basically those responses that we took on and we looked at it and we just turn it around and it's about reclaiming and embracing those things that, you know, people say these things and I don't think they quite understand how deep they cut and, you know, what you, what you choose to take on, you know, throughout life. Yeah. Yeah, it's just um, such an ingrained notion of, especially as a woman ages, what how you're expected to behave, what you're expected to wear, what you're expected to say. And so we're challenging those, um, the roles that are I- imposed upon us and also the expectations that are there in society for, for how women should be. And we're saying, well... No, <laughs> we we we're going to um, reclaim the space that that we uh, our role in family in work, work. and our, um, the role of our bodies as well in in society and how we're viewed. It's really about how we're viewed, and we want to say, well, we don't we. It's how we see ourselves that's important, not how others see us so much. Mm. And doing it with a laugh at the same time. Oh, absolutely. Which is the best way, I always think, to deliver a serious message is to kind of like slide it in under the radar of comedy because comedy softens us up, opens us up, and then we leave thinking about something quite significant that that hasn't been presented to us in a didactic finger wagging. Exactly. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that we really were very careful of because the original idea I had, it was going to be very serious and we're going to do these these great sort of like physical movement pieces. And when we started put together, I'm like, well, actually, I can't see it. I can't shape it. I don't understand what it is. And then we started talking. We started mucking around. And all of a sudden, it just clicked. And I'm like, of course, this needs to be funny. Because we've got some very serious scenes in there. We've got some very hard-hitting scenes. But the comedy balances out. And I think we've actually been able to incorporate both elements quite well. So from where it started off in my head five years ago <laughs> to now, it's completely different and I'm so grateful for it. And I, 
you know, I think it's exactly what it needed. And the women that I've worked with have just, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure. And I hope when the audience come to see it, that's what they'll see because, you know, these women really bounce off each other. And it's it's just a joy to work with them. The production is I Am Catherine, and we're speaking to its director slash producer, Renee Palmer, and one of the actors who's helped devise the work collectively, Adrian Sloan. Adrian, who are the other performers in the piece? So there's Trudy Boatwright... Beth Liston and Sarah, Sarah Breen. <laughs> yes. Uh, had, had you worked with any of them before? Or is this uh, kind of experience uh, introducing you all to one another as performers? Well, I, um, Sarah I went to university with. Um, Beth I hadn't met before, but I knew um, Renee had worked with her. And I'd worked very briefly with Trudy before. But we'd never done a whole show together. And it's just... We just get on beautifully so it it just makes it such a pleasant experience because i was thinking how challenging it would be to be working on a devised group piece like this Mm. if there were kind of personal tensions between performers for example yes it kind of like that kind of um tension creative tension can lead to a spark at times and create great Mm. work but it can also make a fairly hellish experience so well what was when i was putting um the performance together it was really important to make sure that all the actors were actually, you know, had theatre-making experience. So they weren't going to be passive in the experience. So they were actually able to then, you know, help direct the show, help shape it, help craft it. And it was really important to make sure when I was selecting the actors that they that I was going to be able to use their strength because eight, all four of them have a, you know, and each actor does obviously like have a unique style and they obviously bring something different. But how is their style going to be able to blend quite, you know, blend easily? And it just does. It really does. And we play to each other's strength. We really bring it out. And then the beauty about it too is that each of the other women sort of like give the other women a bit of a kick on stage as well. Like, that was great. You should do that. This brings this out. And we really, it is very much a collaborative and organic process that we've been going through. And it's been, like I said, I keep saying it repeating it, but it is. It's a great, you know, one of the, one of the most lovely, uh, directing experiences I've had for a while. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the production is I Am Catherine. It's on at the Owl and Cat Theatre in Richmond, uh, which is located at 34 Swan Street, Richmond. It's a terrace kind of a classic Richmond Terrace. So if you're wandering along the street looking for a grand old theatre, it's, <laughs> it's big, bigger on the inside, shall we say, <laughs> kind of in a theatrical, creative sense uh, uh, and what goes on in terms of ideas inside the place. But from the outside, it looks kind of like a terrace. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's directly opposite uh, Richmond train station, so very easy to get to. Uh, so the Owl and Cat, 34 Swan Street, Richmond. Uh, I am Catherine from the 16th of June until the 21st of June. Tickets are 22 uh, and you can book uh, at au. Renee and Adrian, thank you both very much for thank joining you. us here at Triple R. Thank you. I hope it's uh, chookers for the season. Yeah. Cheers. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. not be a high plains drifter but she is uh, an addicted cinephile who joins us fortnightly to talk about screen culture in all its forms. Cerise Howard, good morning to you. I've drifted across the odd high plane in my time, I'll have you know, Richard. Uh, but n- not while uh, being chased by gunmen in a spaghetti western, I would warrant. 
No. 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 Truth cool. be told, no. <laughs> uh, good to see you. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm uh, chipper. Excellent. Good, good, good. You're not off to the Sydney Film Festival? Uh, not as far as I'm aware, no. No, I hadn't made any plans to. Uh, I have at least one friend uh, who has jumped on a plane this morning to fly up to SFF uh, to check out a title or eight. Uh, my, uh, our mutual friend, Mike, uh, is uh, jumped on a plane this morning and I believe he's seeing about five or six films a day because he is insane. I hope one of them is the new Peter Greenaway uh, biopic about Sergei, Eigen's, um, Sergei Eisenstein's trip to Mexico. Um, in which he uh, discovered a certain sexual side of himself that the Russians are not very happy about uh, being documented or enacted uh, in a film of the current day. Ooh, yes. intriguing. Okay, oh, I'll yes. keep an eye out for that one. Maybe it will come to myth. Uh, one would hope. Yeah. yeah. Um, but let us not talk about uh, possibilities and predictions and films that are screening in other cities. Let us uh, turn our gaze to Melbourne Town and uh, a couple of current titles. Yeah, well, do, do we want to begin with the one that you and I both have freshest in our memories? Yes. That's yes. Uh, yes, Jurassic World, which we both saw last night at its uh, red carpet premiere at IMAX. In 3D. I particularly enjoyed drinks beforehand surrounded by dinosaurs uh, because it was at the Melbourne Museum in the Hall of Dinosaurs. It's always fun to uh, stare at bones and fossils. There were a few fossils there, um, and there were also some real fossils that you could handle. But uh, unlike some of the uh, more elderly actors in the room. Yeah, yeah. And then a certain amount of, uh, well, if we we turn our attention now to the film, there were certain elements of that which were quite retrograde in their own right. That seemed like something from a bygone era. We'll get to the sexual politics. politics of it all. Yeah. Look, I mean, Jurassic World, I suppose anybody, no matter what age they are, principally are going to be seeing this film, going to see it because there are dinosaurs in it and not necessarily expecting any subtext, but um, anybody looking for anything, uh, especially of the now, let alone progressive, will probably be pretty disappointed in how this film uh, portrays sexual politics, especially concerned with the nuclear family, career women, uh, and how ghastly they are until they discover their maternal side and then suddenly become kick-ass in some strange, uh, unsensible shrewd way um, there's a lot that's quite incoherent a lot of things touched on in this film but rather abandoned meanwhile foregrounding I suppose what everyone actually hopes will be foregrounded which is battles between dinosaurs look my inner six year old would probably have delighted at Jurassic World which we should say is the fourth film in the franchise originally uh, kicked off by Steven Spielberg with Jurassic Park based on a Michael Crichton novel about the cloning of dinosaurs and the dreadful results that happen because as we all know there are certain things man should not meddle with which has been a uh, a, a trope of science fiction for as well as long as science fiction has been around pretty much certainly in the cinema uh, of course, in the latest film, uh, 20 years have passed since the terrible disasters of the earlier Jurassic Park, and yet, nonetheless, people still seem surprised when terrible things happen, when dinosaurs escape uh, and run amok. In this new film, we have a genetically engineered dinosaur because the public apparently crave bigger and better things all the time. So in one way, this film could be a critique of Hollywood itself and a critique of the Hollywood spectacle and the cinema of spectacle and the soulless Results that yeah. operate. And it starts off with pretensions to as much as well. That kind of uh, loose. quickly abandons yeah. them. Yeah, it, yeah. it both. It, it, it's 
fascinating that it is critiquing uh, capitalism um, while at the same time reveling in it. Uh, and that critique, as we say, is very swiftly dropped. I mean, you could say there's a little critique of uh, the military-industrial complex getting their hands in areas that they shouldn't either in this, but really, uh, I don't think that's, uh, that's pretty skin deep. But uh, there are all manner of sinister figures on the periphery of this story, which is really pretty thin. The story is ridiculously thin, uh, and even thinner are the characters themselves. The CGI dinosaurs have more depth than any of the characters in this film, and we've already noted that the gender politics are retrograde and appalling, um, and in particular there's a, a, a needlessly um, sadistic death of a female character that is just exceptionally drawn out um, and did not need to be there. You've already commented on uh, the way the film seems to comment on career women uh, and their lack of uh, femininity and their lack of maternal instinct. Um, And the dialogue is excruciatingly bad. I was wincing while watching the film because you expect that sometimes bad guys will talk in uh, in, uh, turgid dialogue uh, to establish them as their their evil, evil schemes but everybody in this film talks in in cardboard dialogue. It's it's excruciating. Yeah, and the main romantic pairing, uh, Chris Pratt. Owen, uh, the trainer of the Velociraptors who has formed an uncommon bond with them and knows best and does. Uh, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's Claire, this uh, career woman, the, the, the exchanges between the two of them are truly, truly dire and any sense that there's any real chemistry there's there. No, there's, there's no, no chemistry there's between no, them. No. nothing. Um, I like Chris Pratt as an actor. He's charming and engaging but he is miscast in this film. Um, I did not buy him in the role uh, as a velociraptor trainer whatsoever. Um, And the special effects are once again, we're into the the domain of uh, the CGI spectacle that has no real weight or substance. There's uh, a couple of scenes in particular sweeping shots that should be grand and dramatic and you may as well be looking at a postcard. Yeah, and then the soundtrack does its best to overcompensate for all of those sweeping soaring strings and, and brass and it's just uh, so over the top um, as is the film as a whole look I didn't hate uh, Jurassic World but I certainly far from enjoyed it it's a workmanlike film that gives the audience what they want and nothing more Um, it's certainly not innovative or original two and a half stars from me yeah, I, I feel much the same. It's a very fair to middling sort of experience, notwithstanding how wonderful the dinosaurs actually look and move. Uh, but really, you, know, it's, you see it for the dinosaurs, the people are all of uh, little interest. Uh, and, and how this sort of film gets to be considered a live-action film rather than an animated film is sort of beyond me as well. It's, it's, it's scarcely any less an animated feature than the next film I'm going to talk about, which is the rather wonderful new Pixar animated feature, which isn't out to next Thursday, but I'm um, very keen to talk about it now because I adored it, uh, Inside Out, which I believe, um, in, uh, after some discussions with some friends and people who have seen the promo for it here in the trailer, that it, uh, that material might actually be a little misleading, sort of pitching this thing as some sort of battle of the sexes type film, or even worse, something which uh, is a little hesitant to make it clear that it's really about a female protagonist and what goes on inside her head. Uh, this is a film from directed by Pete Doctor and co-directed uh, Ronnie Del Carmen. Pete Doctor was one of the directors of Up, uh, a previous Pixar film to have reduced me to a teary mess only within its first ten minutes. And me. Yeah. 
and uh, one of the writers of WALL-E. So great form with some of the, the greatest of the Pixar films. And this is actually, I found, a, a very emotional experience as well. Uh, it concerns the goings-on in the headquarters of 11-year-old Riley's brain, uh, or rather her mind. It's a little bit more abstract than that. Uh, wherein uh, five emotions run a control panel, more or less operating Riley. Uh, there is joy, there is a sadness, there is fear, anger and disgust. So all simple emotions, all colour-coded appropriately, with joy the leader trying to keep uh, Riley's life on an even and generally very jolly keel. She's quite forthright uh, and in a way which I would probably find quite obnoxious if I had to spend too much time with her. Maybe I uh, relate too much to sadness and some of the negative emotions inside Riley's head. Uh, but they're all uh, wonderfully drawn characters with rather more depth than that simplistic uh, um, description of their, you know, what emotions they represent might sound. Um, and in the, the workings of the mind are really what this film is concerned with. The psychic landscape of a young girl whose life is becoming more complex uh, upon her family's upping and leaving her beloved childhood home in Minnesota for the rather scarier new environment uh, in San Francisco. Uh, where life has to begin anew and there are teething problems with the move into a new home. Uh, and this film then really takes a turn towards a rather more complex emotional terrain in many respects and becomes extremely moving yet very, very funny as we... Uh, as, as Two of the emotions, the key ones, joy and the barely tolerated sadness, begin to realise they may have to sort of work together and become a little more uh, complex in how they team up in order to negotiate all sorts of uh, problems within her psychic landscape so as to get Riley in the real world back onto uh, into a rather happier space and happier relationship with her parents. It's actually very sophisticated and uh, there are some extraordinary things in Riley's mind, some extraordinary ways they've visualised aspects of her psyche not least when joy and sadness are brought by uh, joy uh, by riley's childhood imaginary friend into an area of her mind marked as where the abstract thought lives uh, where the, the film just sort of deconstructs itself visually in a series of remarkable virtuoso transformative animated sequences it's just um I adored this film, Richard, if you're not picking up on that already. I, I am, and you're not alone. Variety described uh, Pixar's 15th feature as the greatest idea the studio has ever had, a stunningly original concept that will delight and entertain audiences worldwide. Uh, the Telegraph in the UK uh, also said um, uh, humane and heart-wrenchingly beautiful, uh, measured alongside Pixar's numerous great pictures. It stands out as one of the studio's very best. Yeah. So it's getting great reviews internationally. Um, I'm really glad to hear it's resonated with you as well. Oh, it did. I, I mean, it, when I first heard about it, I was thinking of that 90s show. I don't know if you remember it, Richard Herman's Head, which had a, a vaguely similar premise where there were, uh, I think, maybe four entities alive in the head of some dweeby office clerk, and there are a couple of Simpsons voices um, cast as live-action figures in that. But this is much more sophisticated than that show ever was. And there are some fantastic laughs in here, but no no small amount of pathos either. And I was a weepy mess towards the end of it. Uh, but the Pixar people are smart. They also know that there's a great gag reel uh, that can be run in the credit sequence to, to uplift one again. And 
I would also, in fact, I wouldn't just wager this. I saw this demonstrably uh, as I saw this with a friend and a couple of his young children. There are some interesting tools for parenting um, that come from this film. Uh, immediately after seeing this uh, young boy playing, acting up a bit, and my friend Greg asking him, so who's, who's the little man in, in your head operating things at the moment? Who's running the show there at the moment? Is it the little red man? Very, very interesting indeed. And I and, uh, should also just lastly mention that it is, um, uh, there's a, as a prelude, as is common with Pixar films, there's a lovely short beforehand too called Lava, all about a lonely volcano who is desperately keen to find someone to love. Aww. Aww. Yeah. So that's Inside Out, the new uh, Pixar slash Disney film in cinemas next week. Two thumbs way up. Oh, yeah. Cerise. Loved it. Now, uh, we're going to take a break for a moment before we continue chatting uh, screen culture because I just wanted to mention that... Melbourne Cinematheque is prevent, uh, presenting Unflinching Glasnost, the bold and bizarre world of Kira Muratova, uh, largely unknown outside the Soviet Union until 1987 when her films were taken off the censors' shelves. Uh, Muratova's unique vision has remained uncompromised. Uh, so at Melbourne Cinematheque at Acme on Wednesday the 17th of June there will be a screening of her first solo feature Brief Encounters a documentary like portrayal of Soviet life highlighting the divide between the urban intelligentsia and the underprivileged peasants following that long farewells depicting a strained relationship between a divorced translator and her teenaged son if you are a triple R subscriber uh, and would like a double pass to the Melbourne Cinematheque presentation of Unflinching Glasnost, The Bold and Bizarre World of Kira Muratova on Wednesday the 17th of June, 7pm at Acme at Federation Square. Give us a call, 93881027. I've got two double passes to give away. And uh, while we take a call, I'm going to play another track from uh, In Colour, solo album from Jamie XX. I played one earlier, but it's a great album, so let's hear a little bit more. This is a track called Obvs, as in uh, the short for Obviously. Cerise, what else is happening in the world of cinema? Have you do you know much about this Kira Muratova, Russian apparently g- brilliant filmmaker who I've never heard of before? I, I do, in fact, and I've even seen her in the world uh, in Odessa, uh, where she lives. Um, now she's not uh, calling her Russian is a complex thing because she's uh, well a filmmaker made a lot of films during Soviet times, but most of them didn't get distributed and many were suppressed. Uh, she was actually born in a part of Romania, which is now part of Moldova. Uh, and she's based in Ukraine and makes uh, some rather wonderful films. I've seen two of the season, including one of the films that's screening next week, uh, Brief Encounters. Might be her first solo feature, I think, from 1967. Yeah, yes, which is uh, one of the ones that uh, we just gave away a yeah. double pass for. Well, yeah. it's terrific. Uh, it's a, a really sophisticated film. Uh, there's a, a very peculiar love triangle at the heart of it, and Muratova is one of the actors in it, in fact. And it's uh, full of flashbacks and shifting perspectives and a very interesting feminist point of view. And it, it's, it's always intrigued me that under communist times, uh, quite a number of extraordinary women filmmakers emerged who actually had the access to the means of production for a short period there. The films didn't necessarily get distributed because of uh, the very regime that enabled them. You, you didn't have to worry about concerns of the marketplace to pitch a, a film. You just needed to be a student or somehow connected with the industry. Uh, it did mean people like her got to make films uh, regularly and, and very unusual and, and, and 
in her case, quite absurd and even cruel films. Uh, she's very interested in repetition and variations upon themes, and, and Brief Encounters just looks at uh, this, this curious love triangle from varying perspectives, uh, and the, the, the three characters involved in it are a, a provincial bureaucrat played by Muratova herself, uh, a geologist, and a country girl who winds up in the employ of uh, Muratova's character. So it's uh, really, really terrific. And the other one I've seen is on a fortnight later, Eternal Homecomings, her most recent film. Uh, the, the plot is that there's a woman who admits into her home uh, a schoolmate she barely remembers and this, this guy just keeps pressing her for advice on a troubling matter. He's in love with two women, half his luck. Um, but what, what's really fascinating about this film is that this scene plays out time and time again, but with different actors performing it, each of them putting their own inflections upon it, um, only for it all to ultimately be revealed as uh, being something more than just uh, a, a repetitive cycle of, of scenes for its own sake. So she's a very interesting film maker and I've not seen any of the other films in the season so I'm really looking forward to this yeah it is a very rare opportunity to see these uh, this her see her cinema uh, and I believe they're all 35 mil prints imported from Ukraine as well so um, yeah get I, on it people I, I feel I need to apologize now for calling her Russian my apologies uh, Kira Muratova clearly not yeah. and uh, the only thing I was going to finish up but by saying Richard is that uh, Acme is while the Cinematics up to all of that they're running a, an Ingmar Bergman season beginning today until the 28th of this month you know one of the greats uh, selected uh, a season selected by David Stratton uh, and with the Sydney Film Festival and National Film Sound Archive all in cahoots I think as many as 10 great films uh, including just four names that I'll just throw out there as sort of musts for any cinephile who feels that they need a handle on one of the greats. Uh, the Seventh Seal, which I think at least probably a lot of people out there are aware of a central image from, which is of a, a crusading knight playing chess with death. Uh, the Virgin Spring, uh, a, a seminal revenge film which inspired countless rather less savoury, uh, especially rape revenge films in, from the 70s onwards, uh, especially The Last House on the Left, original and remake. Uh, and uh, the classic Persona from 1966, which was just one of the great films of the 60s, a very, very modern film in which uh, it more or less deconstructs itself as well uh, along the way as ideas of identity and representation. Uh, it's just absolutely extraordinary. And I, I saw that last year, Cinematech screened it uh, within days of having watched Under the Skin and found all sorts of weird resonances between those two films that was quite unanticipated as well. So that should give you a sense of just how very, very modern that film is in case anyone out there has got this idea that Bergman would be some fusty, boring, old long, dark journey of the soul type dude exclusively. So that's the essential Bergman showing uh, at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, film selected by David Stratton. Uh, uh, there is uh, details about that, of course, on the ACME website acme.net.au And Cerise, given that you are a film critic yourself, I just thought um, we should probably plug uh, MIF, the Melbourne International Film Festival's Critics Campus, mm -hmm. applications for which are now open. Um, this is a, a five-day lab that enables emerging Australian film critics to develop their skills in a live festival setting. Um, you can uh, apply. Uh, the cut-off date is fast approaching. It is tomorrow, 5pm, Friday the 12th of June. 
Uh, and for all the details, you can go to myth.com.au forward slash critics campus or one word. Uh, but yeah, it's an opportunity for emerging critics to, to be mentored in, to, to participate in panel or attend panels with key Australian industry and media players and produce your own daily coverage of films at MIF for the age and the MIF website. So, uh, uh, if you're an Australian critical film writer in the beginning stages of your career with no more than two years of experience in film writing, who is available uh, to be in Melbourne between the 2nd and 9th of August inclusive, uh, myth.com.au critics cam- forward slash critics campus. Yeah, it's a really tremendous initiative and there might well be some international talent involved in the mentoring or running of workshops as well as there was last year in its uh, inaugural year. It's a terrific initiative. Well played, Miff. Bring it on. Thank you, Miff. Thank you, Cerise. We'll catch you in a fortnight's time. Mm-hmm. It's time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning. I'll be back with you next Thursday between 9am and midday talking more art and theatre and uh, I'm not sure what else because I can't remember what interviews have currently been organised but uh, I promise it, it will be an action-packed show. Chris Gill is up in just a moment. I'm going to leave you with uh, a new track by Sasquatch, Sorry I Let It Come Between Us. Oh, actually that's the name of their album. So... Uh, if I, I'm not going to play, sorry, I'm not going to play the title track. I'm going to play the opening track. I'll be fine. And I'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.